We'll be reading from Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. But I want to encourage you, fill up with God's word so you can flow out to others. <laughs> and when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on him and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we believe that you can transform our lives by your Spirit. Help our unbelief. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know about you, but I have a, uh, a handful of reoccurring dreams, we'll call them dreams, more like nightmares, that uh, drive me crazy. Has anybody got reoccurring dreams? I'm going to just assume that everybody does, so I, don't, I feel less crazy. Um, a couple of mine are that I am trying to run. The situation will be different, whether somebody's chasing me or I'm trying to get somewhere, but I'm trying to run, and doesn't matter how hard I try, it's like my legs are in quicksand, and I just am like slow motion, and, and it's so frustrating because I actually, I like to run. Like, I enjoy running. I, I physically am able to run unless I'm dreaming, and then I just like cannot run, and it run, and it drives be crazy. It's like my feet are stuck in mud or something, and I'm going so slow. And I, oh, even talking about it, I just feel this like frustration in me of not being able to run. Similarly, uh, hopefully th this one, I, I don't know why this happens because I don't run into this situation. But uh, in my dreams, occasionally, I, I'll need to fight somebody. I, I don't do this in normal life, you know. But uh, but for whatever reason, either protect myself or protect my family or something. I'm sure noble, you know. I need to need to throw a punch. 
and I can't. It's like my hand is like underwater, and it doesn't matter how strong I go, my, my fist just feels like, ugh, and that's it. And like I cannot, cannot muster a punch, and it drives me crazy. I, I don't know if any of you have those dreams, but I have, I have Googled those dreams and found other people have them. So whether or not you want to comfort me, the internet tells me I'm not crazy. And that, uh, just because I can find somebody on the internet that thinks I do the same thing I do, that probably doesn't help me. But I'm going to tell myself that I'm not weird that other people have it. Dreams uh, are usually kind of an extreme form. I don't, I, don't know, I don't study dreams, but it seems like it's kind of an extreme form about real fears we have, about, about needing to be able to do something and not being able to do it. Like that is a, a, an actual fear, at least I have, of, of not being able to accomplish something that you want to be able to do, whether it's something physical like that, uh, physically your body being able to do something, but maybe, maybe something else in your, in your work, you know, something, especially if it's something you, you know how to do. You've done it before. And yet getting to a place where you, you can't for some reason or another, whether it's physical or circumstantial, it can be so frustrating. You say, I know how to do this. I've done this before, and yet I am prevented from being able to do it in this situation. Maybe it's with family, trying to provide for them or trying to connect with the relationship or whatever else it may be. It can be so frustrating to, to, to want to do something, to have the desire to do it, and yet be unable to do it. The disciples in the passage we just heard read had a moment a little bit like that where they had something they felt they were supposed to do, had even felt like they were called to do, and yet were not able. That's the phrase that we use. They were not able to do it. That phrase, not able, is so frustrating and humiliating and miserable. And yet today, I want to speak into that moment, that moment of not able and, and ask you, invite you to see what God may want to, to, to teach you and to impress upon your heart in that moment. Not, not before it or after it necessarily, but right there in the moment of not able. How God might use that moment. How do you handle moments of weakness or powerlessness, being unable? That, how we handle that just, just might be a moment of life transformation. Last week we started this series in the second half of the book, of Mark, and we're calling this series The King's Cross because the first half of the book of Mark displays Jesus as this unequaled king, unrivaled king who has authority over all things. And yet he is a unique king because he is a king that knows he is headed to and plans to head to a cross. So last week we saw where Jesus was up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. And he was transformed, transfigured, and they, the disciples got to see his glory in a unique way. And today's account happens just as they come down that mountain and meet up with the rest of the disciples. When they get down the mountain, they find there's quite a commotion going on. There's been some backstory happening that they walk up upon. Jesus asks them about their argument, and somebody steps forward from the crowd and fills us in on what's been going on while the disciples were up on the mountain with Jesus. A man brings his son. They apparently had come looking for Jesus and when they had not been able to find Jesus, they settled for the next best thing, which was his disciples. And they, this, this man asked the disciples to heal his son. He had an unclean spirit, a, an evil force, a demonic force that had been at work in his, his body, in his physical being for a long time. And the disciples apparently thought, they got this. They can handle this. 
after all, they had been here before. If you flip back just a couple pages to Mark chapter 16, Jesus had sent out his disciples in pairs of two, and he had given them authority over unclean spirits. And so in Mark 16, 13, it says they cast out many demons. And so here in Mark chapter 9, as the boy's father reports to Jesus in verse 18, he says, So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. There it is, the dreadful phrase, not able. What's Jesus' response? Well, how does he respond to, these, to this man and his, to the, his disciples? What is he going to say to his disciples as they failed to do the thing that, that looks like they should have been able to do? Verse 19, we read, O faithless generation. Faithless? Does he mean, doesn't he mean powerless? They, they failed to do. They were not able to do the thing they were supposed to do. And he calls them faithless. He didn't mean powerless. He meant faithless. What do you know? Jesus meant what he said. But who is he, who is he talking to? He says a faithless generation. So this apparently represents a, quite a few people. This is a, a cultural problem. This is not just a few people problem. Everybody around seems to have this problem. But significantly, he is including his disciples, his own disciples in that description of a faithless generation. You see, as we read this story and the, the miracle that's in the middle of it, the, the miracle is probably what, what, what you remember. If you just heard that story for the first time or if you'd read it before, you probably think about this man and his son and the miracle that happens. But Mark is such a, a, a great storyteller. And, and we think of Mark as kind of a shorter book, but this account, if it's also in Matthew and Luke, Mark has the most details. He has crafted this story in a beautiful way and included some extra parts that the others don't. And, and he's doing it to, to make sure we get a message. In verse 14, it says, the very first thing that, that happens in this account, it says, when they came to the disciples. So the disciples are the first kind of characters announced in the story. And the very end of the story, in verses 28 and 29, the disciples come to Jesus asking for more explanation about what just happened. So the bookends of the story is about the disciples. Starts with the disciples, ends with the disciples. And what he's telling us is that this, was, this account, it's a miracle, yes, for the son and for the man, but it's a, a lesson for the disciples. The, the take-home lesson, everybody didn't catch it all. He's trying to tell it to the disciples, which means he's trying to tell it to us too. He wants a lesson. He wants to, us to hear something about this miracle. So it is about a miracle, but it's about more than a miracle. The disciples drew close to Jesus to learn from him at the end of the story what was really going on. And there's a lesson there, there in itself, is there not? When we're confused, when we have questions, come closer. Draw closer to Jesus. Ask more questions, not less. Don't run away just scratching our head. Come and ask more questions. That's what the disciples do. And as they do, Jesus' final rebuke to them, after the, the, the first part of them not able, and he rebukes them at the end, he tells them this in verse 29, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So here's what he's connecting for the disciples and then for us today. Prayerless people are faithless people. Prayerless people are faithless people. The disciples had experienced powerlessness. They were not able to accomplish something. And the reason they didn't accomplish it is that they lacked faith. And the reason Jesus knew that they lacked faith is they didn't pray. If you don't have prayer, if you don't have power, it's because you don't believe. And the way you know you don't believe is you don't pray. 
Faithless people, prayerless people are faithless people. Their lack of prayer is the evidence of their lack of faith. And when Jesus told them this kind, I don't think he's separating out different kinds of demons. I think here's a reference to demons in general. These kind, these, these spiritual demonic forces, this cannot be dealt with on a human level. You need the spiritual realm. You need Jesus. And Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, all of our battles are not really just against flesh and blood. We, we fight a, a, an evil force out there at all times. And so we all need Jesus. We all need Christ to fight our biggest battles. And if we need Him, the way we access Him is through prayer. But if you don't believe, you won't pray. Prayerless people are faithless people. Apparently after the ministry success back in Mark chapter 6, the disciples had started to kind of say, you know what? That was pretty impressive of us. We got this now. We know what to do. We just say these certain words or do this certain thing, and we can handle this. And they didn't pray. Can you imagine that? Coming, on to a, coming into a, a, a spiritual battle, coming into a place you know that you need something that's beyond what you can see to help you, and that they think in their arrogance that they can handle it. By now, they were learning the hard way what Jesus would later tell His disciples the night before He was crucified in John 15. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. How often do we try to go about our tasks prayerlessly? We go through our, our actions, things we've done before. Maybe we've accomplished it. Maybe it's been big. Maybe it's been small. But we go through our lives doing the things before us without prayer which is the same arrogant assumptions the disciples had. I don't need help. I got this. I don't need to ask anybody for help because I've done this before. And yet how often do we get to the same, that place and we go, Oop. actually, now that I think about it, I do need some help. Maybe good things, maybe ministry things, maybe things God has even called us to, specific ways you just know that God is, is asking you to, to go and to minister or to, to love on people or to do whatever else, good and holy things, being a husband, being a, a wife, being a, a hard worker, doing the things that you, you know God has given you this task to do, like He had sent the disciples to do something. And yet they're not able because they don't really believe they need help. And the way we know that is they didn't pray. They didn't ask for help. The clear evidence they're trying to do things on their own power is that they didn't pray. Whether it be big or small, do we pray about the things we're going through. We all have some kind of threshold that once it becomes a certain difficulty level, then we'll pray. You know, like the old saying, there's no atheist in a foxhole. It takes, it takes you know, near-death experience to pray. For a Christian, we want our threshold to be really low, like just waking up, having consciousness. That's a good excuse to pray. All the time, pray. Paul Miller wrote a, a great book called uh, A Praying Life that a pastor friend of mine gave me this summer uh, when I was visiting him. And uh, he's got so many great stories. I probably could just sit up here and read his stories, but I just picked one. Uh, he talked about coming across a, a, a somebody who said, you know, we really shouldn't pray over trivial things like finding a parking spot. And this guy, Paul Miller, was kind of like wrestling with that. Like, should we pray over a parking spot? And he took that question to his mom. And the, the reason why he thought about his mom is his mom had spent a fair amount of time in the mission, on the mission field and at different points had been in really tough situations in the mission field. She served in a place that had come through civil war and so all, all the infrastructure of the place was really uh, torn down. 
So day to day, they didn't know, you know, food, water, lights, electricity. Would the toilet flush? Would the grocery store be open? Would I get robbed trying to walk to the grocery store? This lady had just lived a lot of life not being able to count on all the basic necessities. And so she was an incredible woman of prayer because she just knew that she really did need God in every situation. And so this guy, Paul Miller, asked his mom, what do you think, mom, should we, should we pray to find parking spaces? And I love her answer. She said, how else would you find a parking spot? <laughs> she was a woman who was dependent upon the Lord for everything. Her threshold for prayer was very low. She would pray about everything. And so it should be for us. We should pray at all times over everything that we face. And I'll be the first to confess because I got the highest spot today. That is a struggle for me. It is so easy to just walk through life, just doing the next thing and not praying about it. Pray for parking spaces. Pray for daily bread. Pray for missionaries on the field. Pray about all things. There are plenty of reasons we give for not praying, right? Plenty of reasons. Maybe, maybe depending on how long your, your journey with the Lord is, we, we probably have all gone through ebbs and seasons where we feel like prayer is great, you know, and not so great at other times. Maybe you've, you're in a dry season even now where you just, you feel like you're just talking to the air or just talking to the, it's just bouncing off the wall you're in and never makes it above the ceiling. You can feel ridiculous. You can feel like, why, why am I even talking? Is anybody even listening to me? It can feel weird or odd or it can just be, you know, boring or repetitive or maybe it just feels like, a burden or a discipline that you just have to work harder at. And so whatever reason we may come up with. Probably the most common, though, is we say we're just too busy. We're just too busy. And I get that. I've got a full schedule. But you know what? I also sometimes, I don't know if anybody else does this, but if I don't have lunch plans with some, you know, some appointment I've got to keep that includes meals, I, I am likely to kind of just keep going on the next thing and forget about lunch. Does anybody else do about to do that? Okay, again, I've got, I've got weird dreams by myself and I'm the only one who skips lunch. Okay, but I can handle that. Um, I, I, I sometimes will get to, you know, kind of midway through the afternoon and it'll hit me. You know what I've never done? I've never accidentally skipped lunch and made it all the way to bedtime and not remembered that I didn't eat. You know what I mean? Eventually, my body reminds me. I have these little signals that go off. You're supposed to eat supposed to eat. So it is, it should be, with prayer. We may feel like we get busy and we skip something here and there, but if we are truly dependent upon God for all things, there are signals that go off say, you know what? It's been a little while, like more than 10 minutes. So you should pray. You should pray. The main issue with prayer is not being boring or repetitive or, or too busy. The main issue with prayer is faith. The reason we don't pray is that we don't truly believe in who God is and that we truly need Him. For some, some people, if you're wired like me, sometimes I think all things are just a discipline problem. If I would just be more self-disciplined, then I, then I would be able to do better things. And there's absolutely a place for self-discipline. That's a fruit of the Spirit. But it is not the main issue with, dis, with prayer, with a lack of prayer. John Bloom is a writer for Desiring God, and he gave a really helpful analogy. He said, with prayer, discipline is like the rails on the railroad. It gives you a track. It gives you a lane. It gives you a place to go. But the engine for prayer is not discipline. The engine for prayer is faith. It's faith. That's what's going to get you moving. 
having a structure, having a time and a place and a strategy, having a list you can pray over, or cards you can pray over, or people you can pray over, having, having a structure will give you some rails to give you some guidance. And that can be good. But the engine, the power to pray, to truly rely on God, is what you believe about God. That will change how you pray. Because if you don't believe He has power, if you don't believe He's good, if you don't believe He's with you, if you don't believe anything good about Him, then there is no reason to pray. But if you know Him for who He is, it will lead you to prayer. Faith is the engine of our prayer. And people who do not have faith do not pray. Prayerless people are faithless people. It seems the disciples had gotten themselves in a pretty tough spot. This man had come looking for their help. And instead of being able to help, they just led to a commotion, to an argument. There's scribes there, religious rulers, these people that are constantly in conflict with Jesus. And this is boiled over into a whole big argument. It was just supposed to be a, a nice, comforting blessing over this man. And then it just went all astray. But that chaos led to a very important lesson a very teachable moment for the disciples. J.C. Ryle was a minister back in the 1800s, and he wrote about this passage that this moment for the disciples was, was pretty memorable. It's recorded in three out of the four Gospels, so they apparently remembered it. And he wrote this, Truths heard with only the ear may be often forgotten, but the things that we learn by smarting experiences, by that I mean it means things that sting a little bit, you know? Things that kind of hurt your feelings, that kind of sting a little bit. It said, those are the truths that remain in our memories. We may be sure that it was a bitter lesson for the disciples at this time, but, we do not, but that's because we do not love to learn that we can do nothing without Christ. The disciples had to learn a hard lesson that day, and they learned it in a very memorable way. They learned that their weakness, their powerlessness, should instead drive them to be more dependent on Christ. Should drive them to be dependent upon Christ. So in between these bookends of the disciples' failure and the final lesson, we get this beautiful object lesson, so to speak, this miracle of what happens. And Jesus invites His disciples to walk through this, this experience with Him so they, their faith can grow. So their faith can grow. He wants to invite you and me in the same way to see Jesus in such a way that it, it grows our faith. And so here's what you should see about Jesus. Jesus' authority and compassion invite us to believe in Him. If you can see Jesus for who He is, if you can see both His authority, that is His power, and His compassion, which is His love, if you know that about Him deep in your soul, then it will grow your faith. Your faith will be transformed. Your faith will grow. You will trust Him more when you see Him for who He is. Jesus displayed who He is by what, he's, what He did. So those disciples and me and you would have a greater faith, that we would believe in Him. That, that's the point of the, the miracles Jesus performed throughout the Gospels. They are meant as signs, as pointers to Jesus' identity. Yes, they, they, they transform this kid's life and they transform this man's life and this family, but they are pointers to something beyond them. They're pointers to who Christ is and what He is able to do. The disciples have been following Jesus for some time now, but they have missed who he really is. So they, as they, Jesus uh, saw this approaching crowd, there were many people that were greatly amazed by him, and he apparently has got a reputation going. But when Jesus asked what was going on, this one man could have explained what, what all this commotion was about. And he, what he described it sounds a lot like epilepsy, right? 
But we can, we can tell from this story it's more than just a, a medical condition. This guy has a, a real spiritual problem. Now just as a you know, side note, possible misinterpretations, does not mean all physical problems are actually, you know, need to be treated by an exorcist, need to be demonic, you know, uh, removal, you know. But the demon can make things that look like physical things. Instead, uh, this man was similar to the man in John chapter 9, where Jesus tells him, God, God's glory is going to show up here. God's glory is going to show up here in a, in a significant way. So Jesus asked for the child to be brought to him, and the unclean spirit cast him down right there. Right there, he had one more, ex- one more episode, one more experience where the unclean spirit is taking over his body. And Mark is the only one between him and Luke and Matthew that captures this next little interchange between Jesus and the boy's father. Jesus asked him how long this has been happening, and the father says it's been happening since childhood. That's a, that's a clue to us that this is not just a, a, a little issue. For his whole life, he's been battling this. And that's also the opportunity where the, the father of the boy says something very revealing. He says in verse 22, If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Do you, do you hear two things the dad's asking there? Two different things he's asking of Jesus. The first question is about Jesus' power or authority. He says, if you can do anything. If. Jesus. He's, he doesn't know. He's saying, I, I don't really know you that well. I think you might have this power, but I'm not wholly, totally sure. I don't want to assume. I don't want to you know, go over, don't want to assume too much here. But if you have this power. So he's first asking the power question. But then secondly, he asks the compassion question, the love question. Will you show compassion on us? If you can, will you? You see how both of those are necessary in Christ. Both of us are necessary. If Jesus had the power to do it, but he didn't love this guy, He could have just kept the power to himself. And the opposite is true. If he only deeply loved him, but could have no power over the demonic forces, still there would be nothing he could do for him. He could give him all the hugs he wants, and it wouldn't matter. He needed both. Jesus needed both. And that's the question the guy has. Do, Do you, Jesus, have both things? Do you have the power? Do you have the authority over these spiritual beings? And do you love us enough to do something about it? Can you hear in that question the question of our own hearts about Jesus? God, do you, do you have the power over the things I'm facing? Here's, here's, here's my laundry list of issues going on. Here's my financial problems and my relational problems and my you know, socioeconomic problems and whatever else it may be. Here's my long list. Can you do it? The power question. Is this within the realm of your authority? If so, great. But here's the second question. Do you care enough? Do you care about me? Here's the things I'm facing. And if you can do it, will you? Will you help me? That's the questions this man brings to Jesus. And whatever else you may be going through, that probably are some of the same questions you may be asking Jesus. Does he have the authority? And does he have the compassion? Big or small things, these are the things we bring to Jesus. But Jesus' response changes everything. Jesus tells him, you're asking the wrong question. (laughs) We want to come to Jesus with those questions, and he'll answer those. But first, he flips the question. He says, if you can, if if you can, and we don't have tone, we don't have facial expression from Jesus, we don't know if he was sarcastic or gentle, I don't know. You can insert your own emotion there if you want to. But he, he repeats his phrase back to him. 
And it's the same phrase that we're thinking about for the disciples. The disciples were not able. Here's the question to Jesus. Are you able? If you can? Jesus tells him, that's not the right question. The question is, do you believe? He says, all things are possible for the one who believes. Jesus lets us know his authority and his compassion aren't in question. The question is not about God. The question is about us. The question is about us. We'll come back to the Father's reply in just a moment, but I want you to see Jesus' gracious display of both those things, authority and compassion for the sake of the boy and this father. Because Jesus, he sees the crowd coming and he starts to, he, he knows that he doesn't want the word to spread too fast. So he's going he's gonna to deal with this. And, and the, the, when Jesus, in this, in this moment, looking at this boy and looking at this, this father, he decides to help. He decides to help. And he just speaks the word and tells the unclean spirit to come out and never come back. And so he shows him. You, you, know, what, you know what that moment, you know what options the demon had? Zero. <laughs> there, he didn't have a choice in the matter. He didn't get to raise his hand and say, actually, can I have five more minutes? No. He had to leave. Right then. Right now. Jesus proved his authority. He proved his authority. And he proved his compassion. That he was willing to help. He proved who he is. The question here isn't about Jesus. It's not about his authority or about his compassion. The question is about us. Do we believe? Many people come to the miracles of Jesus in the Gospels and they want a replication of the miracle. You, you, want, you want another miracle like this. They want the immediate healing like this boy experienced. They want, we want the, the, the thing, the relief, the food, the, the money, the whatever else it may be. Pay my taxes or do whatever. We want the miracle that Jesus got here. But if that's all we got, we'd miss the point. The point isn't about the miracle. The point is about Jesus' authority and His compassion. The point is about knowing Jesus, seeing Him better. Jesus, it can be easy for us to read miracle stories and kind of get caught up in, why, why doesn't Jesus do things like this right now? Let me tell you, He does. In different ways, perhaps. But I, maybe it's just in a week where my, my head was attuned to miracles. But I just felt like this week I kept coming across some time and time again, I got a phone call this week from my buddy from seminary. I haven't talked to him in a year. And we've been following each other and sending messages and that kind of thing. But I knew he has, he has twin four-month-old little girls. And uh, I knew they had spent some time in NICU. That seems normal for twins. I know there's you know, complications in there. But he told me some more of the story. When they were 12 weeks pregnant, they went to the, the, to the ultrasound. They had been, they'd had one before. They had seen you know, there was a baby, they, one baby growing there. And they got to the 12-week appointment, and there was no heartbeat. They could not find a heartbeat. And they, they were pretty sure there had been a miscarriage. You know, the doctors, they've done this zillions of times. They said, you know, so we'll come back in four weeks and check. And my buddy Tim was like, we can't wait four weeks. Can we go to a specialist? So they go to a specialist. The very next week, they find not just one heartbeat, but two. <laughs> and he talked about just the, the, the emotional wave of that. And there have been all kinds of complications that have come. And the, health, the babies are healthy and they're doing good. But you just had, I just had to rejoice with my buddy over the miracle of the multiplication of life and how great that was. I had another experience on Friday where I uh, talked to a guy I'd never met before, but he was telling me an amazing story where six or seven years ago, I think he said, where, where he had a collapsed lung. He was at a hospital in, in Lawrence and they told him, you know, we don't have all the stuff we need here to get to you. So tomorrow morning, we're going to get you to Greenville and they're going to be able to treat you. 
And because uh, I was asking this guy about his faith, and this was the story he told me. And he said, but I prayed, and that night my, my lung opened back up. I could, I could breathe out of that lung again. It came back. And the doctors weren't really sure exactly how it happened. And he just told him, well, I prayed, and God helped me, you know. How many, we all have dozens of stories like that, I'm sure. And it's just easy to take the, even the, the, you know, we can write off things in medical or whatever else. But let me tell you, even though I, I haven't seen the, the, because of the clouds, but, but because of the light, I know the sun came up today. It came up today. Let us not presume that just because it came up yesterday, it's going to come up tomorrow. It's a miracle. The breath, I don't know. I mean, I've studied, I took AP, bio, AP biology, but I still don't really know how oxygen that I can't see goes in here and then gives energy to my muscles. Like, that is a miracle. You can describe it all you want, but it, God gives miracles upon miracles upon miracles. Let us not get so distracted that we miss God's power day by day and think, oh, I need God to show up in some life-altering. He has. He's shown up time and time again to give miracle upon miracle. The question is not God's power. God's power has been on display from beginning of creation. God's glory has been clearly displayed. The question on the table is not God's power. The question is our faith. Do we believe? God has gone to great lengths to show who He is and what He is like. He is not on trial. In your life, the biggest question is not, will God stand up to trial? Can you answer my questions, God? Here's the things that I complain about. Here's the things that I think you should have done differently. Here's the things that I got to know whether you are just and whether you are loving. Here's the things I want to throw at you, God. That is not on the table. That is not in question. The question is, do we believe? We are on trial, not God. He has done just fine. He's the only one with a perfect record, in fact. He has all power, all authority, and has remarkable compassion. The climax, I think, of this story comes in what the Father replies to Jesus. And His reply, I think, is meant to be a lesson to you and to me, and it was meant to be a lesson to the disciples. This man, this father of a child, who was terrified. I just cannot imagine being in His shoes. Some of you have been in different circumstances, but crying out for a child and the anguish of that. And this is a man who's coming to Jesus desperate for help. He doesn't, he, he, this, is the, this is day one of meeting Jesus. He, knew, he must have heard something about him for him to come, but he just started. The disciples have been following for a long time, and yet this man is a teacher to the disciples. When Jesus tells him all things are possible for him who believes, it says that the man cried out. And that's the same word, same language there used for what the demon did just a few verses later. This is a cry of total desperation, anguish. This is like just, oh God, help, right? And then this is what he says. I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. So what I want you to hear this morning, what the disciples needed to take away, what we need to take away, is that we too can pray that way. Pray, I believe, help my unbelief. I, I hope you can hear how amazing of a, a prayer this is. 
this boy's father recognizes that Jesus has turned the tables back on him. The father, this, this boy's father had come and he's asking, he's putting Jesus on trial. He is putting God in the dock. He is saying, do you have compassion? Do you have power? And he hears that Jesus says, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's not the question here. He, the father can feel it. That Jesus has turned the tables. It's not about Jesus' authority or compassion. That's not in question. The question Jesus says is, do you believe? Everything's possible for him who believes. Do you believe? And the father can feel the weight of that. He can look at his son who is actively convulsing on the floor and he can feel the weight and the pressure of, I have to believe enough to, to, to save my son? And he says, well, I, I mean, I, I believe, kind of. I think you can. But I, but I don't really, I know. And will you help me with that? Will you help me with my lack of belief? I don't believe enough, God. I don't have enough faith. I need that kind of faith. Will you give it to me? And do you know how we know that that was enough faith? Jesus healed him. It was saving faith. This father is looking at his son on the ground and saying, I don't have enough faith for that. And Jesus says, you're right. You are absolutely right. And when you can admit that, that's faith. That is faith. That is saying, I need help. Praise God that your righteousness, your standing before God, your holiness is not dependent upon you saying, I got this. Because if you do say it, you probably don't got it. We need to recognize that true, all true faith sees how small it really is. All true faith recognizes, I only have a little bitty bit of faith. And when we come to God saying, He's, I, I need you, I need you, that is faith. Yes, I believe, uh, kind of, and I'm struggling. Will you help me to believe? That, that very moment right there of, will you help me to have the faith I need? That's faith. That's faith. Because... It's asking Jesus for it. He's asking Jesus to help him. And if you are asking for something from somebody, somewhere in you, you must believe they can supply it. He's saying, I don't have faith. Hold on. The man doesn't say, hold on. Let me go to the store and I'll get some. Let me go to the rabbi. Let me go to the scribe. Maybe they will give me some faith and then I'll come back here to you, Jesus, and I'll present myself as faithful enough for you to be able to do the miracle I need. No. Where does he turn for help? Nowhere else but Jesus. Apparently he thinks Jesus has the power not just to heal, not just the power and compassion, but also the ability to give the gift of faith. Do you, do you hear the good news here? We, it can be so easy to say, Jesus does his part and I have to do my part. You do the power, I'll do the faith. You don't want that. That would not be good news. Him do 50%, I do 50%, we'll call it even. No! That's bad news. And it's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we read, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, together, that, is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, 
Do you hear that? That's salvation. Faith itself is a gift from God. You and I have to be given faith or else we would never believe. We have dead hearts and if God doesn't bring them to life, we can't believe. You know what a dead person can do? Nothing. A spiritually dead heart cannot make itself have enough faith to believe. But if God has begun to work in your heart, the first thing you recognize is, I need Him. I need Him. The one, that's, the one that has the authority, the one that has the power, I need that. And that cry of desperation, the I need faith, is an expression of faith. And it is saving faith. Because that's what God used to bring salvation to this young boy. One pastor, Jason Meyer, said, This father believed partially, but not fully. What do you do about that? Do you try harder? Do you resolve to doubt less? No. He brings even his unbelief to Jesus. The father has faith that Jesus can help him with his lack of faith. Bringing our doubts to Jesus does not offend Jesus. He already sees what's in our hearts. He knows the problem. But we have reached the point where we will humble, but will we reach the point where we will humble ourselves, confess our need, and bring it to him, and beg him to do what only he can do? This desperate father knew he needed help, and he came to the one who can help him. He didn't know how, but he said, help my unbelief. I've used this story probably at least a handful of times of illustrating saving faith. I saw this in a magazine from a professor in seminary of two examples of what saving faith might look like. One example on the, I'll say your right-hand side, is a sign beside a frozen over pond, and the sign says, this ice has been tested, and it is safe for you to walk out on. You can drive on it, you can play hockey on it, whatever you want to do. Ice skate, it is a safe pond. It's been tested by the authorities. And that picture, there's a little, there's footprints out, out there, out to the middle of the pond, and there's somebody standing on the pond, and his knees are shaking. And there's a speech bubble above his head that says, I think it'll hold me. I hope it'll hold me. I hope this, this won't collapse and I'll freeze to my, plunge to my death in this pond below. I think it will, I hope. The, next side of, the other side of the picture is a similar lake and a similar sign, but that sign says, this pond has been tested by the authorities and it is not safe to go on. Do not drive on it. Do not even step on it. Don't try to play hockey on it. It will crumble soon. Do not go out there. And similarly, there's some footprints out there and there's somebody standing in the middle of the frozen over lake temporarily. And he's saying, I am confident this will hold me. I am sure that I will not plunge to my death. I will be able to enjoy myself out here on top of this lake. And the question below is, which one of these has saving faith? You know, the temptation is in our world, we say, you know what? Faith is just being confident. It's the person out there on the, on the, the bad ice, but he is confident about it. You know what his confidence is going to do? It's going to lead to his death. Because the point of saving faith, what makes saving faith saving faith, is not how strong it is. It's what do you put your faith in? The person with saving faith is the person. He, he, he's got room to grow, but he had enough faith to get out there on the ice. And it's good ice. The thing that saves you is not being overly confident. The thing that saves you is Jesus. It's his power, his strength, his authority. If you see the grace of God, as shaky as it may be, and you say, I, I don't, as shaky as we may be, if we can say, I, I need you, that's saving faith. That's saving faith. 
Do you see your weakness? Do you see your inability to cast out demons, to get through the end of your day, to make supper, to go to work tomorrow without cussing at somebody? Do you see your inability to go through the day-to-day things of life? If you can see it and say, I can't, then you're in, you're in the right spot. The question is, what do you do in that moment? Because what the disciples tried to do at the beginning of this is just try harder. Just argue their way through it. Eventually, we'll argue our way and we'll get rid of this demon. Do you know what the father of this son did? He said, I can't, but you can. I don't have enough faith. Help my unbelief. The disciples got a lesson. The father of the son got a miracle. He got salvation. He got transformation because of his faith, as little as it was, because of who he's put his faith in. I believe Help my unbelief. Verse 26 of Mark 9, after the demon had left the boy, Mark says the boy was like a corpse, and then many people thought he was dead. But we read in verse 27 that Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Just a few verses before, the end of Mark chapter 8, Jesus had told his disciples, I'm going to be delivered over to the authorities. I'm going to be crucified, and then I will arise. Next week, or two, two weeks from now, later in this same chapter, Jesus is going to tell them one more time. And then again, he's going to tell them about this. And they, they of course, miss all this. But right here in this, this moment, where we see Jesus caring for this boy and showing his authority over demons, he's showing he also has authority over death and over life. And he would prove once and for all his authority and his compassion when he went to the cross. If we had any doubt about whether God needs to be on trial, if God needs to be judged, God's authority and his love needs to be questioned, the cross and the resurrection settled it once and for all. Jesus proved his authority over sin and not just little bitty demons, but Satan himself and death and the grave when he rose on the third day. And he proved his compassion once and for all when he, though sinless, went and put himself voluntarily, laid down his life and put it on a cross where you and I deserve to be. God is not in the dock. God is not on trial. His compassion, his love, his power has been proven once and for all. The question is, do you believe? And if you have been listening, you know the answer is, not enough. But I know who to ask for help. I know to come to Jesus. I believe, kind of, I'm struggling. Will you help me with my unbelief? And if you can pray that, Jesus saves you. He transforms your life. And He is with you. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your amazing power. God, that You have seen because you created the whole world. You've seen everything there is. And there's never been anything in this world that you've looked at and been fearful that you couldn't control or stop or manage. You've been in control the whole time. Father, thank you that you've never created a life, somebody in your image, and had to wonder whether or not you would love us. You have loved each and every one of us. Father, we come to you proclaiming and thanking you for your authority 
and for your compassion. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for putting it on display so that we can see you and glorify you. God, we know that deep down the question isn't about you, it's about us. Will we believe? And God, as soon as we ask it, we recognize the answer is not enough. We, we don't believe enough. So Father, I pray over everybody here right now that we would recognize our unbelief, that we don't really trust you. And the reason we know is because we don't really pray, at least not very much. So Father, we pray that you would help with our unbelief. Give us faith. Grant us a trust in you. Because apart from your work, we will never, we'll never really turn to you. We need to see you with eyes of faith, and we need you to give us the faith. Father, work in our hearts, even now. Father, there may be, I don't know, there may be some here even today who've never really believed in you. So God, I pray that today would be a day of salvation, a day where people would turn to you who do not yet know you and say, I believe, help my unbelief. Father, may we all turn from our sins. May we see the ways that we are living contrary to your will, contrary to the way you intended us to live, where our anger, our, our pride, our lust, our selfish desires have won over our heart. God, we lay those things before you and we confess we need help. We need help. So God, grow our faith. We know only you can. We trust in you today. We believe. Help our unbelief. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.